Welcome to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. I'm D.T. Kane, author of the epic fantasy series The Agersfar Saga and The Spoken Books Uprising. Each week, I read from one of my novels, discuss my writing process, answer your questions, and have general discussions about fantasy fiction. It's like a book club, except I do all the work for you. Find show notes, info about all my novels, and much more at dtkane.com. Here's the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Today is October 16th, 2022, as I record this, which is episode 13 of season 2 of the podcast, and episode number 40. Overall, we are just rolling along with the episodes here. Uh, Good to be back with all of you. I uh, took my trip to Colorado last week, so for me, it feels like it's been a little uh, longer than usual uh, getting behind the mic here, though I know for, for all of you, I still got my weekly episode out last week, so probably does not seem like any abnormal delay to any of you, but uh, good to be back with all of you. Uh, nonetheless, uh, today is an analysis episode, so no no narration. We'll be discussing chapters 11 through 14. Um, just a quick personal update as usual. Like I said, uh, Colorado last weekend was... Uh, amazing, frankly. <laughs> the nature there is great. Went on a couple of hikes, went up a mountain, though not one of the, the 14ers, which is uh, that's Colorado's thing. They have a bunch of mountains that are 14,000 feet high. Um, it's too cold, even in October, to, to climb all the way to the top of those. Um, so we did a Chief Mountain, which I think 11,500 was the peak there. Uh, but that was still fun. Took lots of good photos. Uh, shared a few uh, in the newsletter this week. Um, if you're a subscriber over there on the the weekly newsletter, uh, though honestly, the the photos don't really do uh, do it justice. <laughs> it's hard to capture the the grandeur of of it all in a photograph. But uh, still, took a few that uh, that I really liked, and I'll be sharing a few more in the newsletter next week uh, as well. I went to a Great American Craft Beer Festival as well. Actually, I guess it's, it's just Great American Beer Festival, but it's all craft beer there. Um, that was a, uh, a ton of fun, though honestly, I don't know. Uh, I think the session was for five hours, 5.30 to 10.30, and I left at around 8.30. Uh, three hours of uh, sampling a bunch of uh, beers, especially a lot of the beers there are so high in alcohol. Uh, <laughs> maybe I'm just... Maybe I'm just getting old. I guess when I was 22, I probably could have uh, done it for the whole five hours. But uh, at uh, at 35 years young, uh, about three hours of beer sampling is uh, is good for me. Um, that's it. I uh, can't wait to go back. Uh, let's see. What else? On the writing front, uh, part five of the Spoken Books Uprising. Finally, I am underway with drafting. It took me a little longer than I thought to actually get rolling, but... Uh, past couple days I got 3,700 words down. That's the first two chapters. Uh, so that's going along here. I'll, uh, I guess I'll share the back cover blurb here sometime in the next few weeks. And uh, i got to get with my cover designer and start designing the cover. But uh, it's going to be called Into the Dragon's Maw, um, which, uh, for those of you familiar with the uh, geography of oration, is... Uh, a forest to the east of Oration that leads uh, 
leads kind of off the uh, off the current map and into the karst. We don't really know anything about the karst yet, other than that no one really ever goes there. It's some barren wasteland. At least that's what little we know about it. But uh, you know, what's Baz doing out there? <laughs> well, stay tuned for subsequent weeks, and I'll start uh, revealing bits and pieces of the plot of Part Five. Um. That's, uh, I think that's about it. Oh, I've got my half marathon next week, so I guess, uh, I guess I'll probably have an update for you on how that went in uh, next week's episode. I'll probably be recording on Sunday, like I usually do, so the, uh, the race is on Saturday. I'm uh, aim- aiming for 204. I feel like th- I feel like that's a good goal because I feel like there's a chance I uh, hit that, but I'm not I'm not certain I can maintain the needed pace for 13.1 miles. Uh, so we'll, we will see, but I'll be pushing for that. Um, so uh, wish me luck. Maybe keep me in your thoughts. Next Saturday, I'll be uh, suffering along from uh, about 11 to 1 p.m. Uh, Eastern time next Saturday. So I'll be running, running along. I'll try to make another uh, funny meme of myself uh, struggling over to the finish line as well. Or I guess it was a gif. I was just uh, chugging along there, <laughs> um, but okay. So let's uh, let's get into the meat of the episode. Here we'll be discussing chapter eleven first. I'm just fixing a header here in my notes. Okay, chapter eleven. So this was um, the first chapter of part two um, of Declaimers. Discovery starts out with uh, Baz and Deliritas walking down a hall, apparently on their way to a meeting at Duke Octavinal's study. Apparently Baz has been left in suspense all night. You'll recall that Chapter 10 ended with Deliritas announcing that he thinks Duke Octavinal knows their secret, which uh, I guess we didn't come right out and say it, but obviously they're referring to the secret of uh, you know Baz being able to read and uh, Deliritas not having finished the Actus trials on his own, or really at all. It really was Baz who finished them for him. Um, so Baz is kind of uh, in a semi-crazy state. He hasn't slept all night. He's been worrying himself to death. <laughs> he has a uh, what the fantasy of uh, of strangling Deliritus here, because Deliritus seems kind of oblivious <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to uh, to Baz's distress here. But eventually, you get around to Deliritus telling us why just why he thinks Octavinal knows, and apparently they were at uh, lunch the day prior, and Octavinal told this, uh, well, initially it's, or excuse me, uh, Farston, I might have been saying Octavinal there, but I meant he had lunch with Farston the other day, and Farston apparently told this story that initially sounds like a nice little children's story about the, the common housefly that gets covered in pollen, and then, uh, gets adopted by a colony of bees. And then when the, the pollen washes off, well, at least the friendly version is, well, the bees still accept him. You know, a nice uh, nice little moral there of, you know, it's what you do and not what you look like, right? But then, uh, you know, Farston is like, uh, well, I prefer the grown-up version where the uh, the pollen washes off. And I guess I should be saying it in Farston's voice. I prefer the grown-up version. The pollen washes off and the bees execute the fly as an imposter. <laughs> um, you know, of course, uh, he's saying this as he's looking at Deliritus. I like, you know, and he's, I, I don't have the book open right in front of me, but, yeah, it amounts to, well, liars always get caught. 
Uh, so that seems, uh, you know, obviously trying to send a pretty uh, strong message there. You know, as Bass point out, points out, well, that doesn't necessarily mean he knows Bass can read. He just knows the lyricist is lying about something. But Bass said he's probably in trouble regardless. You know, they might just execute him to keep it quiet that a uh, speaker actually completed uh, the Actus Trials. What would that uh, What would that say about readers if, uh, you know, if speakers were doing their job for them? I also just like Baz's. Uh, you can just you can just imagine Baz here. They're walking down the hall. He hasn't slept all night. He's been you know he's like worried to death. And now he's just heard that he's probably going to get executed. And he's like, well, I guess Farston's just a sick twit who tells children homicidal bedtime stories. <laughs> oh, I like uh, I like that one. I can just. Uh, can just I think that just fits fits with Baz's character. You know, he's kind of uh, sardonic, always kind of uh, down, but you know, dark humor as well, kind of attitude. <clears throat> um, you know, so I think t- you know to this point, Baz has been kind of painting a dark picture of Deliritus since they returned from the trials. You know, he hasn't been treating Baz as well. You know, and he's been taking all the credit for winning the trials. But you know, we do see here a little that you know Deliritus doesn't like dwelling. On the trials, you know, I think Baz brings uh, Baz brings up Marla Colnar or maybe her harbor at one point. Deliritus doesn't really want to talk about that. And, you know, is that just because you know Deliritus is frightened of some of those memories, or does he actually have some shame surrounding the trials? Uh, I guess hold that thought until we talk about the chapter twelve here in a minute. Um, but Dell's also worried uh, here too, right? You know, Baz finally notices that, you know, oh, Dell's got the bags under his eyes and the rumpled clothes. So, uh, you know, Deliritus is, uh, is worried too about this, uh, revelation that Farston may know the secret. You know, again, uh, exactly why Deliritus is feeling this way, we're not entirely clear yet. It's just that, oh, you know, it's gonna hurt his standing, I guess it really would, uh, you know, disgrace him if it if it made became public that his speaker completed the Actus Trials for him. Um, or is he, you know, is there something deeper here? You know, worried about <clears throat> worried about Baz. Um, you know, we do see, especially at the end of the chapter. You know, Deliritus is trying his best. It seems to get along with Baz. You know, he tried to include Baz earlier in the preparations. Um, for heading off to to fortune on this trip to fortune um and then at the end here you know he is at the end of the chapter he does try to uh um you know get baz to work with him again and you know baz is baz is the one who is preventing that right you know saying he tells deliritus i despise you and uh you know deliritus is like well deliritus admits right you know that baz deserved better but the laws are the laws and you know, you could see some, there's some, uh, you know, again, we're not trying to <laughs> justify slavery here, of course, but that's the, uh, the circumstances in, in this world. And you can see how Deliritus is kind of stuck between his two worlds here. You know, it seems like in under other circumstances, he might actually be a friend with Bastion, but he's like, well, but I, what can I do, Baz? You know, what can I do? You know, you're, you're a slave and, uh, you know, even if I, uh, you know, tried, <laughs> to, even if I tried to improve your lot, the laws wouldn't let me. Um, so, you know, but Baz isn't willing to let him off the hook there. So, again, just as, uh, you know, Deliritus kind of multiple sides in book one, we are going to continue seeing here um, that, uh, you know, it's not as simple as Deliritus being a, uh, you know, a snotty, spoiled, uh, you know, uh, child of a child of royalty. Here, you know, Deliritus has some 
have has some depth to them. Certainly some some negative traits, but uh, you know they're not all negative. Um, you know, also of note here, rocks. This might be the first uh, the first time, other than when they left uh, Deliritus with uh, Aramir back in Book One, that rocks is not uh, you know glued to Deliritus' side. Uh, it's because Rox is resting from being healed. You know, uh, we've seen referenced a few times now, you know, being healed, especially from a grievous injury like uh, Rox just suffered in his duel with Ag, where he basically got, you know, impaled by a sword. That takes a lot out of you. So we'll see how relevant that becomes as the as the story uh, progresses here and not having Rox at full full strength. But, you know, you probably know that's going to be relevant somewhere down the line here. You know, and then we have this brief debate about, you know, what exactly is Farston's motivation here for, you know, his apparent blackmail uh, of Deliritus? You know, you know, first he kind of embarrasses him with his duel with rocks, um, and then, uh, you know, he he also has let slip that he knows his secret, but he's not revealing that he knows. You, you'd think, you know, the average reader, if he if he discovered this, uh, you know, this. Uh, you know, this shameful act that Deliritus had done, at least in the scope of uh, other readers, they would think this is a disgraceful act of letting his speaker complete the trials for him and then lying about it. You'd think a reader would just be shouting that to, to uh, you know, to the rafters, but Farston is you know, obviously holding this over Deliritus's head for some reason, you know, and Deliritus kind of, you know, makes this weak argument, oh, well, he just wants to basically buy my vote at this upcoming session of the Congress, but Baz is like, you know, does he does he need to blackmail you into voting against rights for speakers? Because <laughs> that's what they're going to be discussing at this this Congress that they're traveling to. Um, you know, Del- Deliritus doesn't have an answer to that, but uh, you know, Farston's motivations have yet to become clear here. Um, you know, then they run into Liana going down the hall, and uh, she's apparently coming with them. She has been chosen as the conservatory's representative at the uh, at the Congress, which is uh, kind of strange, right? She is a librarian, which is like one of the lowest ranks in the conservatory, and yet they've chosen her to uh, to represent the entirety of erstwhile's conservatory at the Congress. So that seems odd. You know, and Del, Del points out, you know, it can't be a coincidence that the only people who know about his secret are going on this trip. So is this something that Farston has somehow organized? Is he going to, you know, or maybe Noctavenal has a hand here. Hand here. They're trying to eliminate everyone who know who is in on the secret. Um, I don't know. You have to think somehow that this secret is, is playing into this selection of who's going on the trip here. Um, you know, and... Obviously, Deliritus and Baz, uh, both, they show surprise, and Liana gets very touchy about this, right? She kind of storms off when they, you know, they they indicate that they, they didn't think she'd be the one who was selected, which, um, I guess we, we don't know a ton about Liana, but it seems like she, you know, she's obviously got a, a strong personality here, and she doesn't necessarily seem like someone who'd be so easily offended, um, so you know, maybe something else to keep in mind here. Is there something going on with Liana that maybe we uh, we don't know the whole story about? Um, all right, so that's kind of the first half of Chapter 11. Then we get to Duke Octavenal's study here. Interesting, if, did you notice this little thing where Duke Octavenal's harbor actually nods at Baz as they, as they walk in? Um, you know, what's that about? You know, we see all these uh, stories 
that are getting around about Baz when he was with the snakes, all these rumors about all the great things that Baz did while he was away on the trials, and you wonder if maybe some of that has uh, has reached the ears of Duke Octavnel's harbor uh, as well. Though, if they have, does that mean maybe Duke Octavnel knows a little more uh, than, uh, than he's letting on? That could be interesting, so... Um, I know I'm reading a lot into that, you know, kind of just that one line that's mentioned in passing, but uh, interesting, uh, just an interesting tidbit there. Um, you know, kind of the main feature in Duke Octavenal's study that Baz notices is he's got this whole bookshelf of spoken books behind his desk, which Baz is like, where did all those come from? So it definitely seems like uh, uh, the Torchsire fortunes have changed drastically in the past few months. You know, the winning the trials really did bring some wealth and uh, some fame to to the library because you'll remember back in book one they were one of the poorer libraries and they seem to have turned that around now that the current champion of the actus trials is in the library uh also there's this there's a locked door off in the corner of the study um you know, and the locks are on this side so i don't think baz actually expressly points this out but that would seem to mean that uh there's something on the other side that Octavenal is keeping out, or at least, you know, there are people on that other side he doesn't want getting in. So that's interesting. We don't dwell on that at all, but, uh, you know, that locked door. Uh, there is relevance there uh, down the road at some point, so keep that in mind. Um, you know, and we see <laughs> this is, uh, I guess, one of the first major interactions between Octavenal and Deliritus we've seen. I guess we, we saw one back in uh, book one where... Uh, Duke Octavenel basically told Deliritus that he was bringing Baz on the trials with him after, you know, Delida was was injured um, by that sidious prisoner in Book One. But you know, he's very condescending to Deliritus, right? You know, he asks Deliritus, uh, you know, why do you ever consider why I have my study here? You know, he's got the view, the view of Xavier Tower, and Deliritus is like, you know, I never really thought of it, Father. Of course, you didn't think of it. You know, <laughs> just. You know, knowing that Deliritus is, uh, you know, not maybe as astute as he'd like him to be. Um, and then, you know, the the Duke keeps goading him further. You really think you're ready to take over this library? Um, you know, very, just the very the very domineering father, father figure here, really. He doesn't seem to have any faith in Deliritus at all. You know, Deliritus does at least have enough sense to say, you know, I well, I certainly need to learn a lot more from you, father, before I before I take your place. Um, you know, so is he just kind of sucking up here, or, you know, is this, uh, is Deliritus, uh, you know, uh, intelligent enough to know that getting into a fight with his father right now is not a good idea? Um, you know, maybe a little of, maybe a little of both here. And, you know, uh, for for what it's worth, uh, Octavenal does concede that, you know, oh, well, at least you know when you shouldn't be getting into a fight. <laughs> you know, and that's a good quality, Deliritus. And uh, what is his line here? Most people would call that cowardice. Most people are also fools. Uh, so, you know, maybe uh, Duke Octavno, you know, perhaps he doesn't think uh, Deliritus is, is, is entirely a lost cause here, right? You know, he is sending him off uh, to the Congress here to execute um, execute his plot, right? You know, we learn that... Uh, Octavenal, you know, whether this is true or not is interesting because we saw how deferential Octavenal is being toward Farston in the earlier scene in the receiving room. 
But Kavanaugh was like, well, I could have gone to the Congress if I wanted to. I think Farston was actually surprised when I agreed to let you go. But uh, the reason Octavinal wants Deliritus to go is he wants him to oppose Farston at every turn. So this uh, you know, turns up the stakes for Deliritus a little, right? You know, Deliritus is probably thinking, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to go to this Congress and vote against all of these proposals to give the speakers rights. But now Octavinal's telling him, no, you're going <laughs> you're gonna to argue in favor of this and, you know, do your best to make Farston look like a fool. So... Um, you know, to help put us in a better position to take over the chairmanship uh, of the of the Congress. Apparently, uh, apparently his term as chair is up as next year, and Octavino wants to capitalize on Torchsire Library's sudden rise in standing, and hopefully, presumably, get himself appointed as chair of the Congress. So Duke Octavino certainly scheming here, and uh, you know, Deliritus. Um, uh, this is obviously going to. Obviously, going to be uh, you know a plot uh, a plot thickener here for Deliritus down the road. How is he uh, how is he going to execute this plan, or will he execute his father's plan here of uh, uh, you know opposing Farston, which uh, we have mixed in here now. And and uh, I guess I I guess I should point out here too. So perhaps this is revealing Farston's true intentions here. Maybe he realized that Duke Octavinal might plot like this, and that's why he's trying to blackmail Deliritus. So Deliritus is going to choose here between uh, doing what his father has asked him or potentially having uh, Duke Farston reveal his secret about not having completed the Actus Trials. So Deliritus, the tension is building here for him already. Um... Of course, we see here, too, uh, you know, maybe I, I, I gave Octavino a bit of a pass a moment before, but uh, you know, I guess any points he earned for at least acknowledging that one good trait of Deliritus are lost because, uh, you know, when he initially reveals what his plot is, right, you know, he tells Deliritus, you're going to oppose Farston, and, you know, Deliritus is like, no, but don't, don't we want to uphold the rights of, uh, or, or the, what, what is that? I don't, I don't remember exactly what he says, but don't we want to keep the speakers down just like Farston does? And you know, Octavinal stands and, you know, slaps him across the face for not, you know, uh, grasping uh, the plan here. Um, and interesting, Dell actually handles that better than Baz, right? You know, Baz kind of looks away and he's embarrassed for Deliritus, you know, so, uh, you know, despite uh, Baz's outward showings, um, you know, he does, he does have a bit of a heart here. He doesn't want to see, uh, Deliritus beaten by his own father. So he feels a little bit of embarrassment for, for Deliritus there. And, you know, meanwhile, Deliritus handles the whole thing with, with stoicism and doesn't, you know, kind of gathers himself and just, uh, just stands there without complaining. Um, you know, which, uh, you know, in in some respects, Baz actually envies Deliritus's composure here, right? You know, he realizes at the very end of the chapter how selfless Deliritus is being. Uh, you know, despite how his father treats him and the, you know the risk of having his secret exposed, Deliritus is still very focused on trying to do his duty to Torchsire, a library. And you know, Baz says at the end, he you know, can't find the scorn in his heart that he usually holds for Deliritus. So you know, again, you know, deep down. Baz realizes, too, that Deliritus maybe isn't as bad as Baz wants to believe that he is, which you know, I think that was a realization Baz had briefly come to uh, towards the end of book one, but then you know that kind of all fell apart when 
Deliritus tried to turn him in as a cuss at the end, and Baz had to blackmail Deliritus there. Um, so, but again, the complicated relationships between the, the two of them continue. Uh, okay, on to chapter 12 here. <clears throat> oh, just a, a quick, quick drink there for me. Uh, chapter 12, right, and, uh, so what happens here? Well, we have a change of perspective. This is the first time in the Spoken Books Uprising we have a chapter, um, I guess other than the prologue of book one, the first time that we have a chapter not from Baz's perspective. We get uh, Deliritus' perspective here for a few pages. He's uh, uh, in bed with Delida, his uh, female uh, companion, uh, speaker, his creator, speaker. Um, you know, it's, I think this chapter is kind of a contrast between both Del's maturity and his naivete. Um, you know, interesting, we learn right off the bat, you know, he doesn't really expect to return from this trip, right? Um, but he's still going nonetheless. You know, he's expecting to either be, you know, executed uh, when Farston reveals the seeker, or at least brought back as a, as a prisoner, kind of like an enemy of the state for, you know, not just lying about winning the Actus Trials, remember, he's concealing a cuss as well, which is uh, a capital offense in oration. Um, but again, this is just driving home the observation Baz made at the end of chapter 11 about how Deliritus is still willing to do his his duty. Um, you know, and we do see how, uh, you know, his sensitivity over being uh, uh, you know, beaten by his father, right? You know, Delida kind of... Uh, uh, what does she do? She, I think she smacks, she smacks him too, right? Or, or pushes him away, or, or something. You know, I, I, I wrote it. I guess I should really know exactly what she does, right? <laughs> uh, let me just refresh my recollection here. What exactly? Let's see here. <laughs> oh yeah, she, she slapped his hand away. That's right. She was, he was about to caress her cheek. She slapped her hand, his hand away, and you know, see, you know, my father, you know, my father hits me enough without you doing it too. Um, you know, and Delida, uh, you know, she's a, another uh, strong personality here. You know, we don't, we don't, haven't seen much of her um, to this point. Honestly, we're not going to see a whole lot of her uh, in this book. She's going to be left behind while they go to Fortune. But uh, you know, she's a, she's kind of a tough cookie here. You know, you know, Delir just like, oh, don't, you know, <laughs> basically, I, you know, I just got. You know, punched by my father. I don't need you hitting me too. He's like, well, you're still so eager to please him, Deliritus, despite how he treats you. She's not letting him off the hook here. Um, but we, uh, you know, so that's you know, this kind of this is kind of a heavy a heavy topic here, right? You know, got the kind of abusive parent, but Deliritus still wants to please him, and we do see this uh, um, this internal conflict he has. Um, you know, he expresses this extreme hate for his father, but in the next sentence, you know, he has this guilt. Oh, how could I feel that way about my, you know, my one surviving, you know, family member, my own, my own father? So, you know, Deliritus certainly has some internal struggles going on here with his uh, relationship with with Duke Octavenal. Uh, also, we we learn one of Deliritus's, uh, you know, primary motivators here. Apparently, he promised his mother on her deathbed that he would uh you know one day take her place as the leader of the library so in in that way that's also driving 
you know, his dedication to duty because, you know, his mother apparently dedicated her life to building up Torchsire Library and now it's kind of, uh, you know, fallen in, fallen in standing um, since she died and Delirtus needs to take her place and really the only way she can take her place is to, you know, stay in line with his father so he remains, uh, remains the heir to the library. So, uh, you know, maybe we can uh, sympathize with Delirtus a little more now, knowing that uh, that that's what's motivating him here. Um, and then, really, the rest of the chapter here is kind of this conflict that I was just addressing uh, a minute ago in chapter eleven. But you know, this conflict between his you know his relative affection for his slaves, right, versus what the law says. Uh, the law says here, you know, he, uh, you know, he apparently loves Delida. You know, he certainly at least uh, has a uh, intimate relationship with her. Um, you know, and he is uh, best friends with rocks as well, which Delida points out. Geez, you can't bring yourself to say one good thing about speakers, but uh, you know, you you're not afraid to say good things about uh, about your big protector there. And, you know that uh, that distinction kind of hits Delirtus hard, right? You know, initially he's like, well, that's not the same thing, but he kind of does realize that, well, you know, Rox isn't any more free than Delida is. Uh, so what's the, what's the difference there? Um, <clears throat> and, you know, he kind of, uh, you see at the end of the chapter here, he kind of, he has a sleepless night, you know, as he's struggling with that contradiction of caring for Delida, but having this aversion to saying anything in favor of the speakers publicly. Um, you know, it's funny. We also learn, uh, you know, Delida has also seen those same reports that Baz referenced where, you know, the speakers are listed kind of on the, you know, you know, right below the livestock on uh, the Torchsire Library inventory <laughs> report. You know, kind of just, that point goes over Delirtus's head, so still showing, you know, he's still kind of uh, a bit of a naive uh, naive youth here. He's like, oh, you can't even read those reports, Delida. Which you know, is probably not the right thing to say in that circumstance. The point she's trying to make is how poorly they they view speakers, not a uh, not her ability to read or not. Um, <clears throat> and how uh, it also goes over uh, his head. Delida is also trying to make this point of uh, you know how badly. Uh, Farston has been treating Delirtus already, and she doesn't see why he should have any problem with just trying to go along with his father's plan to kind of screw, you know, screw Farston up here a little, or at least make him uh, make him look bad. You know, bad or Delirtus kind of twists that. Oh, so I can my motivation for for doing this could actually be, uh, oh, you know, getting revenge for what he did to rocks. I don't actually have to mean anything that I say about the speakers, which again, you know, she's trying to convince Delirtus. Uh, you know, they're talking, uh, yeah, they have different motivations here, right? And Delirtus isn't grasping, grasping it. Delight is trying to give him some reason to say some good things about speakers. And, you know, I'll, uh, you know, she's trying to actually give him, <laughs> she's trying to give him a ladder to, climb out of the hole he's been digging for himself with her and instead of saying oh well sure maybe i can say a few nice things about speakers in that case it's like oh well i can just look at it as revenge i don't actually have to mean anything nice about the speakers yeah <laughs> so um yeah, delirious is still uh, clueless in certain respects despite how mature he is in other respects but uh at least at the end here, Delida does, you know, it looks like she's about to hit him, but then she does see the bruise that's on, you know, 
Delirious's face from where Octavinal struck him, and in you know instead it turns into a an intimate touch and, and goes from there. So Delia is not totally heartless with Delirious either, but um, you know I thought this was uh thought this was an important chapter to include here. Um, you know when you don't have a character's perspective, sometimes it's hard to fully appreciate their motivations. So I think. Uh, at least I hope this achieves uh, making Delirtis a little bit more uh, complex and in the minds of all my readers out there. Um, I would be interested to hear what you uh, think of that, actually, uh, if you have any thoughts on uh, having chapters from the perspective of Delirtis or or other characters other than Baz. I'd love to hear them. DTKane at DTKane.com. Are you, uh, you interested to see more chapters from Delirtis' perspective? Let me know. Uh, all right, so that's chapter 12. Uh, moving on to chapter 13. Um, so we are about four days later. Everyone is uh, out in the wilds now. They are well into their journey to fortune now. And we join uh, early in the morning. Baz is waking up, and he's got a problem. His cloak is missing. And uh, recall where he got that cloak from. It was a, a gift from uh, Liana, remember, that she gave to him when he left for the actor's trials back in book one, so he is upset about having lost it. Uh, but uh, eventually, we discover that, in fact, the person who gave it to him is the one who stole it. You know, Liana kind of playing a trick on Baz here. You know, she's still kind of uh, touchy, it seems. She hasn't been talking to him since uh, since they left on the on the trip, and you know, she refuses to talk to him even once he figures out that she has stolen his cloak uh, until they, uh, until she, you know, finally gets him to kind of, uh, you know, admit, you know, not apologize. Baz like, well, if I apologize, she might just even be more angry. She's not looking for an outright apology, but Baz kind of admits that she got the better of him. And, you know, finally she can't uh, kind of keep up the facade of being angry uh, at him anymore, you know. So just a little, uh, you know, example here of the relationship that they have. You know, they uh, they <laughs> they kind of annoy each other, right? But you know, they they clearly get along as well. And you know, maybe Baz wants a little more than getting along here, right? You know, he kind of gets caught. Uh, you know, when he finally gets the cloak back from her, he realizes it smells like her, and he's smiling to himself. And you know, you know, I was like, "What are you smiling at?" And <laughs> Baz realizes he's about to. Uh, you know, he's maybe giving away some feelings he doesn't want to be giving away here. He's like, oh, it, it smells. You know, he turns it into an insult to her. You know, like like he's, you know, like he said previously, that's, you know, they insult each other all the time. So this is, uh, this is how they, this is how they interact. You know, maybe a little stereotypical here of how the, uh, you know, the, the two young people who like each other don't treat each other <laughs> kindly all the time here. So that's kind of what we've got going on here, though we do still have the, you know, Bass points out yet again, he doesn't understand why Liana's being so touchy, she's never, she's never like this, she's not someone who just, you know, takes offense and then holds it against you for so long, so, you know, again, we're left wondering, what exactly is going on with Liana here? Um, you know, Rox is also here, he is, uh, sitting outside of Deliritus's tent, <laughs> Um, and it seems that he may have fallen asleep while on guard duty, uh, you know, because, you know, Baz kind of ferrets out of him that, oh, he didn't, uh, he didn't hear or see anything last night, you know, 
Bass kind of works out of him because he know rock. He knows rocks can't uh, can't lie because uh, of his uh, his enigman background. He is sworn to tell no lies. Um, you know, Bass is initially gleeful about this. Oh, I don't don't know if Rox has ever messed up before. It'll be it'll be nice to see Deliritus getting mad at someone other than me when he finds out about this. But then, of course, he feels like an ass when Liana reminds us that uh, you know of Rox's injuries and that he's exhausted still from uh, from that whole healing process, and that's probably why he um, you know was dozing at night. Uh, so uh, you know, an interesting. You know, again, we saw at the end of book one that Baz and Rox essentially became friends, right? But then you know, Rox had to side with Deliritus there at the end, and Baz pushed him away. You know, but Baz still, he feels bad about having, uh, you know, given Rox such a hard time when, you know, he almost died, right? And that's why he's he's so drowsy. And then, you know, Rox kind of turns up the guilt even more on him because he has Baz's hat. You know, remember Baz asked him to hold on to it at the end of book one, and you know, you know, uh, Baz is not allowed to wear hats in erstwhile. You might recall they don't want their speakers covering up the brands on their foreheads that mark them as speakers. So you're not allowed to wear a hat if you're a speaker in erstwhile. But now they're out of erstwhile again. So Rox has apparently brought Baz's hat along with him, and he gives it back to Baz, and Baz is uh, thrilled, <laughs> thrilled to have it back. My hat. Um, you know, and he's so happy that he actually thanks Rox and apologizes, you know, all in the cell at the same time. You know, and if we know anything about Baz, those two things don't uh, come very easily to him. So, you know, again, just as we were seeing uh, back in Chapter 11, the continued complicated relationship between Deliritus and Baz, we're getting some more of that here between Rox and Baz as well. Uh, okay, just a couple more tidbits from 13. Apparently, Farston has this whole sleeping wagon that he brings along with him. You know, kind of, of course, he does. He's the the rich aristocrat here, so he's not sleeping in a tent. He has a, he brings his whole bed with him. Um, and what else here? You know, Deliritus does sleep in a tent, but it's just for him. No one else is allowed in there. <laughs> he comes out in a dressing gown at the end, right? Like he, uh, <laughs> like he's still sleeping at home. Uh, so you can just see a bit of the comic scene there. And again, showing in some respects, Deliritus, uh, you know, mature beyond his years and in others, like, you know, dressing in a, in a dressing gown when he's essentially out on a camping trip. So, uh, you know, yeah the contrast between the the multiple sides of Deliritus here, and obviously just a bit of comic relief here as well, of course. Uh, but then Farston comes out, of course, catching <laughs> Deliritus walking around camp in his, in his dressing gown, and he's like, well, we'll probably get to our uh, next destination a little early, so what do you say to a bit of entertainment tonight? You know, apparently Farston wants to have a speaker's duel, uh, which you know how Baz feels about that. Uh, <laughs> not good at all. Um, after, especially after he saw what happened when their harbors dueled. Um, you know, what does Farston say at the end of the chapter here? It'll be like bees against common flies. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, if you take that in a vacuum, it makes it sound like, oh, well, of course, you know, you guys are the champion speaker, uh, and reader pair, you know, you'll be able to beat me no problem. But, uh, knowing what he told Deliritus at lunch, you know, a few days ago, that story, uh, you know, that's just driving home that he, in fact, knows what their secret is. Um, and then, uh, so that's 13, and that rolls right into 14. 
you know, they, they're traveling for the day. Baz is just uh, trying not to vomit because he's worrying about this this duel that they're going to have um, at night. And uh, so they reach their destination, which turns out to be uh, Paper Ferry, which is this kind of destitute town on a lake that's called the Shallows. And uh, in the center of this lake is an island called Fable. Uh, and apparently this is where all the paper used to be made for the spoken books. Um, you know, apparently it's still an operating factory because they still need paper for some things. But remember, you know, no one can write new spoken books anymore because you need someone who can both read uh, and draw the power from the books. You know, so a cuss or an orator in uh, the antiquated language. Uh, you know, Baz, that's what Baz is. He is a cuss or an orator. That's what the uh, the keepers beneath Tome would call him. Uh, but since no one, at least legally, is an orator these days, no new spoken books are created, so most of the, the town of Paper Ferry has gone to ruin because the need for paper has gone down drastically since you can't make new spoken books. It's just this kind of ghost town now with a handful of old uh, sailors living there. Apparently there are still occasionally people from the factory that have to get to and from the mainland, so there is a ferry still operating, and we've heard a few times now that the conservators sometimes take pilgrimages out to um, the paper factory as well to see, you know, where the paper that the scribes used to write their great books was made. Uh, but other than that, there's really no reason for people to be going to Fable these days. Um, so maybe just a bit of bit of world building here. All right, so after we get the setting down, they're making camp along the the shores of the shallows here. Uh, you know, Farson comes out and is like, oh, well, it's a little early for dinner. Why don't we have our duel now? Um, so Adele asks for a few minutes to kind of prepare. And him and Baz goes off, go off to the side and, you know, kind of strikes Baz that Deliritus could use this as a, uh, you know, kind of a, a way to dispose of him, right? Maybe just let Farston kill him in this duel. Uh, and then... Uh, Dell wouldn't have to worry about Baz revealing his secret, but uh, you know, Dell's like, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Baz basically is almost a little offended that Baz would think that. Um, you know, and it does seem, you know, this is implied, but it seems that he wouldn't do that just because it's not the right thing to do. Though uh, Deliritus does say, well, you have to at least see that I would be embarrassed if I had no speaker at the Congress, Baz. <laughs> so he points out kind of a more. Uh, a, you know, a, objective reason as well, which, you know, Baz is like, well, and Baz seizes on that, right? He doesn't want to think that Deliritus actually has a, you know, has a conscience. He just, uh, he's like, well, well, that makes sense. You know, Deliritus does put a, he'd probably rather have his secret get out than uh, be embarrassed in front of other spe readers. So, <clears throat> um, so that finally convinces Baz to kind of cooperate with Deliritus and they apparently come up with some sort of plan, though it quickly falls apart once the, uh, the duel starts, um, you know, we get a little explanation of what a speaker's duel is. Basically, it's a, a dignified fist fight, right, between between two readers. You know, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be proper for, you know, two readers to fight directly, so they kind of fight through their speakers, and it's kind of like whoever the, whichever speaker submits first, um, uh, that reader, uh, the reader who makes the speaker submit is the winner. You know, of course, Baz is like, well, that speaker is also the loser, but, uh, you know, they don't talk about that. <laughs> uh, no one cares what happens to the speakers. Um, apparently, speakers can even die in these uh, in these duels. 
you know, uh, if a reader really wants to put it to uh, uh, kind of their uh, competitor, you know, they can kill kill their speaker. You know, it's kind of a kind of a way to uh, publicly embarrass somebody. Uh, you do have to you have to pay <laughs> the cost of replacing their speaker, but Baz is like, well, sometimes uh, you know, sometimes that's worth it uh, in the eyes of the readers. You know, if they really want to make a point to the person they're competing against. So this is a potentially serious business here. You know, Farston couching it as entertainment, and not entirely, uh, not entirely uh, accurate here. Uh, this is uh, this goes beyond entertainment here. Um, you know, Dendeliritus and Farston have a quick exchange about uh, kind of the rules of engagement here. And, you know, again, we're reminded of this way that Farston, you know, he's got kind of like this hypnotic voice that like forces you to look at him, it seems. Uh, and at this point, we don't know, is this some sort of magical thing or is Farston just, uh, you know, does Farston just have that kind of presence? You know, Baz is like, you know, look into his eyes because his eyes are kind of, you know, uh, unsettling right you know baz says they're colorless um which you know obviously they must have some sort of color but that just kind of drives home they're they're not you know they're not eyes you want to be uh looking deeply <laughs> deeply into uh that's for sure um you know we see deliritus actually stand up to farsenlo here you know deliritus you know sometimes he seems like a bit of a fop but you know other times we do see he's got some uh he's got some balls on him right you know we saw we saw him uh know save baz from the from the fire breather in book one and you know now he you know when he doesn't have a bunch of other readers looking Dell's like you know none of this business about you know what you did with the duel of the rocks where you know you basically just made up rules that would favor you you know we're not you know i'm gonna you know the the person who owns the the speaker gets to call submission you know none of this stuff where the other reader calls mortality which was the rule that farson kind of just invented on the spot in uh Back in the dining hall with the duel between Brox and Ag, who is uh, Farston's uh, harbor. <clears throat> and Dell's like, spells no shorter than 10 seconds. Because remember, I guess the, the idea is for this to kind of be a friendly competition. At least that's how Farston was couching it, right? Um, so presumably the shorter the spell is, the less damaging it can be. And Farston's like, do you think that will limit the harm I can cause? You know, so again kind of, uh, you know, he basically just admits there, right, that he doesn't really view this as, as entertainment. He is trying to, to hurt Deliritus, or at least hurt Deliritus via hurting his speaker. Um, but okay, so they, but they do set out their rules, and then they get to dueling finally, and Farston is extremely fast at reading, right? It's like, you know, Deliritus doesn't have time to, like, look down at his page, and Farston's already got his first spell cast. He's, you know, basically calling down uh, spears made out of water from the sky. Remember, there's a giant lake there, so there's plenty of water for Farston to, to draw power from. Um, you know, but Baz is dodging spears from the sky. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Deliritus, you know, does he panic here? It's a smart move, but he has uh, uh, Baz read a, a spell that basically summons a smoke screen that creates cover for them. Um, maybe that's intelligent, you know, Dell realizing, uh, well, geez, I, <laughs> I'm not, probably not going to win this in a fair fight, so i got to do something. Uh, but that causes Baz and Deliritus to be separated, right? So uh, Baz is just kind of coughing and wandering through this cloud of smoke, and you know, he finally finds his way out, and he finds himself face-to-face -face with a dragon. 
but it's not really a dragon, right? Uh, it's just kind of this summoned, uh, this summoned uh, reptile. <laughs> it's a spell, right? A nebulous blob of lake with vaguely reptilian features. Um, <laughs> but still, uh, what what is a uh, what is Bassavion? This is ridiculous. How can <laughs> you know? How can I defeat someone who can summon dragons from a you know from a puddle? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but that is is driving home you know how powerful Farston and his uh, his speaker here are. Um, you know, but uh, Baz uh, Baz shows us here that spells are not always the answer, right? Because he kind of rolls out of the smoke cloud right into Farston's speaker and uh you know the speaker is apparently getting ready to say another spell to harm baz and what does baz do well he just punches him in the nose <laughs> you know and that puts an end to that um so you know baz for a brief and has like seems to think he's won because you know you're you're supposed to be defeating the other speaker really um and he's kind of uh you know literally the knockout blow to the other <laughs> the other speaker in this competition but then farston uh, comes out of uh, the smoke screen, and uh, you know, if we were uncertain about you know Farston's voice before, we kind of see now it. You know, there's something uh, there's something out of the ordinary about it. It's not just a, it's not just that he's hard to uh, hard to ignore. Because Baz, you know, Baz realizes he 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 fails to make eye contact with Farston, and then he like he can't do anything when he's like swimming in an ocean of cotton or something, kind of just like floating while Farston's sitting there, or uh, standing there talking to him, you know, and uh, he says some interesting things here. Uh, He references, uh, you know, he's been trying to see Baz again ever since last we met, uh, you know, implying that Baz and he have met before, um, you know, before that, before they met here at the beginning of book two. You know, Baz doesn't seem to think he's ever met this Farston guy before. It'd kind of be hard to miss. But uh, that's what Farston says, and he also talks about how there's great power in Baz and that he'll be perfect. But perfect? Perfect for what? You know, what's, who is this Farston guy? Uh, there's so many questions uh, around him, um, uh, troubling questions, at least as far as Baz is concerned. You know, and he reaches out toward Baz like, uh, you know, like he wants to, like, choke him or something, but then Farston flinches away uh you know, again, you know, just more questions here. Why does Farston, why does Farston flinch away from Baz? Baz is essentially helpless here under, you know, Farston's kind of hypnotic spell. Um, but Farston flinches away from him. And then before anything else can happen, we hear uh, Liana shouting. Just kind of remember the smoke is still all around them from this smokescreen spell. But Liana is shouting about, they're cityless, they're under attack. Um, that kind of like brings Baz out of his stupor. But then... Uh, you know, all of a sudden, this this pain radiates through his head, and and there is darkness. It appears someone has attacked Baz from behind and and knocked him out, and that is how Chapter Fourteen ends. Um, so hope you uh, hope you enjoyed that discussion there, chapters eleven through fourteen. That you're eager to continue on here to see what trouble Baz finds himself in next. Um, so for next week, we're gonna read Chapter. 15 and uh well i hope when i asked earlier if you're interested in hearing some more chapters from deliritus's perspective your answer to that was yes because chapter 15 is from deliritus's perspective so uh you have that to look forward to for next week's reading um now let's see so uh 
I think that's all I have to point out there. Not a bunch of, I don't have a bunch of uh, reading points really for you in chapter 15. We're just going to see, you know, some of the after af- the aftermath here. Chapter 15 picks up immediately at for after the end of uh, of 14. So we'll see what all the shouting was about about cityless there. So look out for that. Oh, and I guess we get a little more insight into uh, just why Farston is uh, has been treating Deliritus the way that he has been. So there you go. I do have a couple reading reading guide questions for you there. Um, okay, but as always, if you aren't able to do your homework, that's okay because I will be doing all the reading for you on next week's episode. And then uh, that's it for uh, our discussion this week. We'll just go over the quote of the week here and then call it a day. Um, this week's quote is from Dan Simmons, who is the author of Hyperion and the Hyperion Cantos, which is a uh, four-book series, uh, Hyperion and uh, Fall of Hyperion, which is the sequel. Each one... Uh, think the nebula award either the nebula or the hugo but they're they're both award winners and they're both uh you know really great more more science fiction than fantasy but uh just really good books <clears throat> um and here is the quote it's kind of a, an exchange of of dialogue here uh do you think it's ready the poet asked it's perfect a masterpiece do, do you think it'll sell i asked no fucking way. <laughs> uh, this is a, a another quote I, I appreciate for the dual roles it plays. You know, I'm always about kind of pointing out how, you know, a fantasy can be so effective because, uh, you know, it can serve kind of a surface-level uh, purpose of just providing some entertainment, but also it can have deeper meaning buried beneath it. So just to give a little context here, uh, the character who's asking the question about whether his work is ready is uh, a character called Martin Silenus, who's kind of this acerbic and jaded poet, but uh, he kind of turns out to be one of the most famous writers of his time. So, uh, you know, obviously on the surface here, this exchange is meant to you know, elicit a laugh from the reader, you know, you're playing off kind of the, the misdirection uh, <laughs> uh, that the uh, person responding to his question here is, you know, it's a masterpiece, but no, <laughs> there's no way it'll sell. Um, you know, so we're also kind of playing off the age-old trope here of, of writers never never making any money. Um, you know, but you can also, and like I said before, if you're just reading it for that entertainment value, that that's totally fine. In fact, um, I think it's great to just be reading purely for entertainment sometimes. You know, but there is more beneath the surface here if you want to go there. You know, there's certainly something to be said for finding a mentor or two and learning all you can from them. But at some point, there's also great benefit in valuing yourself, having confidence in your work, rather than needing the validation of others. It can be difficult uh, to persevere when it feels as if no one believes in you. We have all been there. I know I certainly have. Uh, but the fact is, very few people can actually predict with any reliability whether a certain story or artwork or career choice will be successful. No one has perfect information. Everyone's decisions are based on incomplete pictures, biased by our own lifetime of experiences. Having the self-awareness to recognize this about yourself will get you far. 
but nearly as important is the realization that everyone else also suffers from this paucity of prescience. When someone tells you an idea is dumb or boring or a sure loser, all they're really saying is, I don't have any experience suggesting that will work. When you realize this, you see how little value there is in such a statement. Few people have sufficient experience to definitively state whether you'll be successful, and even those choice few who do have overwhelming knowledge of your field still only know how they became successful. But the paths to success are nearly infinite, and you may just be on a different one. So, listen to others and evaluate, but also have the courage to hold your head high, believe in yourself, and push onward, because at the end of the day, there's really only one thing the successful have in common. Perseverance. Uh, okay, as always, hope you enjoyed the quote of the week in my little little essay there. I love hearing feedback about really anything on the podcast, but uh, you know, I put, uh, put a lot of thought into these essays too, so especially if you have any thoughts about uh, this essay or any other essays from our quotes of the week, feel free to shoot me an email, dtkane at dtkane.com. And if you have a favorite quote from a fantasy or science fiction book, I'm, I'm willing to you know, go over to the science fiction side as well. But if you have a favorite quote, uh, shoot that over to me via, via email, or you could uh, you know, message me on Twitter or Facebook as well. And uh, perhaps I will feature it on a future episode of the podcast and also in the weekly newsletter. Uh, All right, that is all for this week. So until next time, this has been D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. Thanks for listening to D.T. Kane's Epic Fantasy Book Club. If you liked today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, Give this video a thumbs up if you liked it and hit that subscribe button and the bell so you get notified whenever new episodes become available. If you'd like to listen to back episodes or review the show notes, visit dtkane.com slash podcast. DT Kane's novels are available for purchase at most major online retailers or you can purchase directly from his website at www.dtkane.com slash books. You can receive a free short story and sign up for D.T. Kane's mailing list at dtkane.com slash email dash sign up. If you'd like to connect, you can find D.T. Kane on Facebook at D.T. Kane Author or Twitter at D.T. Kane Author or send D.T. Kane an email at dtkane at dtkane.com. See you next week.